Welcome to episode 618 of the Entertainment 2.0 podcast brought to you by the digitalmediazone.com. I'm Josh Pollard. And I'm Richard Gunther. And this is the show that puts you in control of your favorite movies, music, shows, and games. Hey, Josh, I missed an episode. I'm sorry about that. I like it's been such a crazy few weeks. I can't remember when I've done the show, when you've been on the show. None of that is even capable of existing in my brain right now. Yeah, it's it's been nuts. I have um I have a sick dog and that's taking more time than one might expect out of my life right now. So, yeah. Uh sorry if I've been absent, it may in fact happen again. Yeah. Yeah. No, that that sucks and that's uh that's a really good, like you are prioritizing the right thing there. So <laughs> no concerns at all from my side. And uh, life has been crazy busy here too. And uh, also no live show or video feed because we also had technical issues tonight. So you're just getting a regular old school podcast this week. And it's a full podcast. We've got listener feedback. We've got audio, video gaming and even ebook and audiobook news to discuss yep. tonight. So instead of wasting any more time doing one of the things that annoys me about podcasters, which is spending a bunch of time at the beginning of the show teasing what we're going to talk about, let's just actually friggin' do it and jump into the listener feedback. This was sent in by Kyle, emailed to us at entertainment20 at the digital media zone.com. And Kyle says, it seems like you haven't been getting much feedback, so I thought I would fill the gap. Kyle, we appreciate you so much. He says, as soon as you mentioned The Making of a Manager, it's a, the ebook that I referenced on the last episode, he says, I downloaded it from my local public library with the Libby app, and I'm excited to give it a listen. Kyle, thanks for shouting out the Libby app. That's how I used, that's the app that I used to listen to the book also. It's a great way for people to get ebooks and audiobooks from their libraries for free. Anyway, he continues with, I've listened to the Manager Tools podcast, that's plural, uh, for years, and they've been very helpful. I also found the book, The Five Dysfunctions of a Team, very interesting. In regard to audio speed, most audiobooks I listen to at 1.5x to 2x, podcasts are a minimum of 1.5x, Entertainment 2.0 is at 2x, and Marketplace by APM is it is it 2.5x. Some I, I I did no, we gotta stop there. We gotta <laughs> stop there. I'm sorry. I just don't know how to yeah, I don't first of all, um Points for using regard properly, because most people get that wrong and say regards, <laughs> but two and a half times? How is that even possible? My brain does not work that fast. I can kind of see us at two times, because I know I'm a slow talker. So but I'm I a fast that. talker. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know. It, it's, I don't know. I don't know what to tell you. I couldn't do, I couldn't do that. My brain would I, I think I would end up like stressed out trying to listen to it. What is I, your speed? My my normal speed for podcast is one point seven x. Um, books it it ranges from one point five to one point seven five. I I don't think that I could do two point five x for anything 
and still be able to listen while doing something else. Like I listen to audiobooks and podcasts while multitasking, and it can already be fairly challenging to get my brain to actually focus on the content while I'm doing some right. other things. Right. And at 2.5x, it would require 100% of my brain. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, I just, that's amazing. I, I listen to most podcasts at 1.4. And I am curious, though, is there anything that you listen to specifically at 1.0? Like, do you ever listen to anything as it was recorded? Mm, no. When I'm listening to things with thick accents, especially like UK, Irish, English, uh, if they're very thick, Scottish, you know, those accents in particular, a lot of times I'll slow them down, but maybe that means 1.2, 1.3x. And I I've heard the book purist be like, you're a monster if you don't listen to these books at 1x. <laughs> but listen, books are narrated at a very slow pace. And I get it. It's intentional. And there's an art form to their narration speed and stuff. But typically, I I don't need that. I just want to listen to the story or or the nonfiction book. And I don't need the more dramatic narratization speed that, that is in the original recording. Yeah, books I usually speed up a little bit. Not a lot, but a little bit. There are, I think, is there one or two podcasts right now? 99% Invisible is a podcast that I listen to at its recorded speed. Roman Mars speaks in a very deliberate and metered way. It's part of his thing. Mm -hmm. He's from radio, and it's part of his storytelling. And as a storytelling podcast, then it, in my opinion, is better by letting it play out the way it was designed. But nearly everything else, I have to speed up a little bit. I just couldn't imagine doing 2.5, though. I, I <laughs> applaud your brain, Kyle. For sure. I am, I am impressed. Yeah. Yeah. His brain clearly works better than mine. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I'm impressed. I'm impressed. Um, I, I did want to thank him also for recommending Manager Tools podcast and website. That is one that I was not familiar with. If you're a manager of, of of a team, go and check this site out. I think it's just manager-tools.com. They've got a bunch of resources, a few different podcasts. I started checking it out. There's a lot of really good stuff there, and they've been around for years. They've got books and lots of other stuff. Definitely worth checking out. So thank you for recommending that one. All right. Lastly, he says, someday I'll ask a real digital media question about replacing my very old TV. Right now, I'm just enjoying all the things my TV doesn't have, like ads and firmware updates, since it doesn't even have an OS or internet connection. Sometimes simple is better. Yeah. Cheers to that. You're not Fair wrong enough. at all. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, over at the Home Tech Show, they talk about frequently setting up TVs without the internet connection if they know that they're not going to use the TV itself for streaming because it just adds all this complication that you don't need. Yeah, yeah. I'm 
starting to wish that I wouldn't have set up an internet connection on my LG TV because that thing seems to get updates a lot. All the time. And when when it has one, it pops up a big thing in the middle of the screen and it says, do you want to do this now or later? And with a reminder of, you can only clear this dialogue using the remote that came with the TV. <laughs> so I will tell you that the last update I saw was actually just more like a toast message, something that came up along the bottom saying that a firmware update will be applied the next time you turn your TV off. You don't have to do anything. And then that message eventually went away. I didn't actually have to go find the remote. I was <laughs> impressed. I don't know if this was a trial or if it's the new way that they're doing things. This happened just a couple of weeks ago. Yeah. I got that same update. I don't remember it being a toast message that went away on its own, but it did definitely only require reboot instead of the really long, painful download and install process. Yeah. Maybe they're getting smarter. Yeah, it's not like this is a, a new thing in technology. We've been <laughs> doing this on all of our devices for a couple of decades now. Right. Shouldn't be. Right. All right. Well, that's going to do it for the email. Thank you, Kyle, for writing in. And uh, we're glad to take feedback and suggestions on different shows, books, movies, all of that, and any other questions related to any of these topics from anybody who wants to email us at entertainment two zero at the digital media zone.com. But with that, we're going to get into the video news this week. And the fact that we waited a day this week, we're recording on Wednesday instead of Tuesday actually got us some of the biggest news of the week. Yeah. We wouldn't have had the full picture if we had reported on this yesterday. We knew this was coming today, but we didn't know all the details. So finally we know what's going on with HBO. We knew that HBO and Discovery were going to merge into some sort of combined package. And in fact, today Warner Brothers announced that HBO Max will become Max. It'll just be called Max. Also, by the way, called this one. It's, <laughs> it's the one that makes the most sense. A lot of people were speculating that they may do something like WB Max or whatever, they, you know, to try and... I, I mean, Warner Brothers desperately desperately wants to capitalize on the Warner Brothers name. But now with Discovery as a part of their name too, that becomes more complicated. And I can't imagine that they could have come up with something that would have worked. People know what Max is already. They refer to HBO Max pretty much as Max anyway. So this works. I'm happy about it. It is going to get you the content of largely most of what HBO Max has now plus most of what Discovery Plus has now. It's going to cost the same. It's going to be $16, $15.99, or $10, $9.99 for the ad-free and ad-supported versions, respectively. But they are taking some stuff away as they give you more content. So for this same price, you're going to lose the ability to stream three consecutive streams with Max, you used to be able, or currently today with HBO Max, you can stream three streams with your account. It'll now just be two. Also, HBO Max today has some 4K content. Now, if you just have the 
$16 package, it will not include 4K content. They're taking that out and they're creating a new Max Ultimate ad free tier. That just rolls off the tongue, doesn't it? <laughs> this will cost about $20, $19.99 specifically. This will enable a total of four consecutive streams, meaning you can watch it with four different things on at any point in time. And it will include an expanded catalog of 4K content. So not only the stuff that you've been seeing, but more titles, more Warner Brothers titles like Harry Potter and such, and any new movies that come out and debut on Max after they've been in theaters will all be in 4K, which is pretty cool. And I'm just getting a reminder behind the scenes from Josh here as well that it's also going to include Atmos Sound. And that has been a part of their 4K content. You could watch things like the Game of Thrones House of the Dragon in 4K and Atmos. And if you want to continue doing that, you're going to have to pay up for the $20 plan. Now, are you going to want to do that? Maybe not. Because if you already get HBO Max as a part of your cable or linear streaming service, and I get it as a part of my phone service, I get it through AT&T wireless. If you already get that, most of those providers are going to also provide you with Max now. But it's not going to be the Max Ultimate ad-free thing. You would have to pay for that. We don't know yet if they're just going to have some upgrade, like, okay, I'll pay $4 more and I'll get the max ultimate thing. But we do know that for the most part, the big names, so Verizon, Comcast, Spectrum, AT&T, and a handful of others have all already committed to just converting your max account to an, or your HBO max account to a max account. And of course, if you're already subscribing, to HBO Max independently, that'll just convert automatically. Now, they're doing a couple of really cool things. If you have like a, a playlist, the things that you want to watch, I forget what they call it, favorites or whatever, that's going to convert automatically to your new account. If you've been watching things and you're halfway through them, so it knows what's up next, that stuff is also going to convert to your new Max account. When's this all happening? May 23rd. On May 23rd, there will be new apps on your device where you watch HBO Max now, and it will just be the Max app. Hopefully, hopefully, it's not as bad as the history of HBO apps has been over the years. Hopefully, they're taking an, a, a moment to maybe also improve the app experience. But we don't know. We don't know yet what that's going to be like. And one final thing I wanted to mention is that if you're just a Discovery Plus user, like you just can't get yourself enough HGTV, then you can still subscribe to Discovery Plus as a standalone thing. You don't have to pay for this more expensive service to get that Discovery content. They were initially talking about getting rid of that, but they ultimately decided that they were going to keep that there. And that costs, I believe, $7 a month for the ad-free version. Josh, what do you think? Is this interesting to you? Well, the content has always been interesting. Well, maybe not always, but 
um, has been fairly interesting to me because of shows like The Last of Us. So, yep. Um, I I think this. I think all of this works well. I think it's a little bit frustrating that you are losing some of the technical features if you stay at the $16 or $10 a month plan. Um, but the pricing by and large does make sense. Um, it, it makes it basically comparable to Netflix, you know, with, with Netflix, yep. you can pay fifteen fifty a month for, for the regular plan or for $20 a month, you get 4k. So, it's it's pretty much the same, and in this case, you're getting all of the great HBO stuff plus the vast majority of the Discovery Plus stuff. So I don't really see much to complain about here, yeah. unless like you're just really upset that you're losing the the 4K and Atmos stuff, and that that's going to cost you four dollars more. Now, the the one thing that I think is a valid complaint. For uh, for especially that that four dollar price increases, HBO Max just increased their prices in February, and now they're doing it again. Well, now. are they though? I mean, they are. If yeah, I I have a hard time thinking of this as a price increase. They are adding so much value with additional content there, and to keep that price the same. And make this work financially, I understand why they had to remove some value. I totally get that. I'm not thrilled about it, but I also don't think I'm going to pay the extra for it. Now, I know some people really care about that 4K. Already on Mastodon, I was conversing with somebody who was not happy about the fact that Mm -hmm. that 4K piece of it was going away. And I get that. I totally get that. But at the same time, I don't think the average consumer cares and they probably know that. Right. I, I, I agree. I, I think that there will be a smaller group of people who are not interested in the discovery content. They just want the HBO stuff at the highest fidelity possible. True. And if that's, you, and that's going to cost some more, then yep. it's a price increase. Yep. Yep. But who knows? I mean, maybe, those people might get ultimately sucked into hours and hours and hours of flip or flop. <laughs> I hope not for their sake. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, don't. It's messy. They get divorced. It's just, it, it, just avoid it. Yikes. Wow. <laughs> All okay. right. Well, let's move on to our next video story. And this is about Google TV. So, Google TV has added more free ad-supported streaming television channels. Also, by the way, ad-supported, free ad-supported streaming television, often sometimes called FAST, with one S for some reason, even though I clearly said two words starting with S. I don't understand that. But anyway. <laughs> don't they let already, logic get in the way of a good yeah, I know, Richard. I know. So if, if you have Google TV, you're probably familiar with the grid that provides you with live television. And if you subscribe today to YouTube TV or to Sling TV, then your channel guide shows up there and it's a quick and easy way to get to all of your linear television through their guide. They also had Pluto TV content, a lot 
of content if you are familiar with Pluto TV. And now they're adding the content from Tubi, from Plex, meaning the Plex free streaming linear channels, and Haystack TV, whatever the heck that is. <laughs> and and I had an initial reaction to this thinking, wait a minute. I always thought that Tubi, Pluto, and Plex's live linear TV stuff was repetitive. I didn't know that they had different stuff. Did you, Josh? Uh, no. Uh, also, I just looked it up. Uh, Haystack is apparently local and global news. So oh. it's more news stuff. Well, that's good, hopefully. Right. If it's actually news. And not just lots of opinion shows, (laughs) but (laughs) like most things called news these days. Yeah. Yeah. But yeah, uh, I mean, they're talking about a total of 800 linear fast channels. That's bonkers. It already takes me like I, I was holding the button down to get to the bottom of the guide tonight to see if I had this update yet. I don't, but I wanted to see, okay, well, where are these other channels? And after I got through my YouTube TV channels, then I'm just holding the down button and it goes through screen after screen after screen after screen of Pluto TV channels. It was maybe 20 seconds, which is a long time when you're scanning for a channel. And I got to the end of the Pluto TV. So they're adding more, like potentially twice as much or three times as much as is already there. I don't really want 800 channels. Do you want 800 channels, Josh? That seems like too much TV. Uh, I, I agree. So I I haven't had real cable TV in many, many years. But occasionally I go to my in-laws and they still have cable TV. Oh, and the number of channels that are on cable TV is frustrating. And, and it's worse by the fact that cable TV providers are still like, well, we can't change the local NBC affiliate from being channel 24. It's been channel 24 for <laughs> right. 40 years. Right. What if I wanted an HD? Well, that's 1,124. Oh, right. Come on. Right. I, so yep. I can't find anything. Yeah. And you just have to know because you're not going to scroll through 1,500 channels. Like it's literally close to 2,000 channels that I think show up in the guide at my in-law's house, which is ludicrous. It's impossible to find anything. And I think that's going to be the problem here too. 800 channels in addition to everything that's already there. When especially a lot of these free ad supported channels are like a channel that shows nothing but MASH. An A channel right. that shows nothing but, you know, an individual show. Alf. <laughs> right. Right. So, like, you can't, I, I suppose you can't really complain about getting lots of extra content for free. But if it makes the overall usability experience worse, then maybe you can. But it's Google and and YouTube, and their algorithms are generally really good at showing you what it is that you actually want to see. Right. And so here's, I think, the shining light. Like, that's exactly the point, Josh. Google is already talking about a revised grid, 
and by talking about it's part of this rollout that I haven't seen yet. Mm-hmm. Not that I'm bitter, but the new grid is supposed to make it easier to traverse the guide. I believe they're adding things like categories and be able to jump to the different services. That should make things a lot easier. But as you said, at the top of that guide, they pull out the things that you are used to watching or that you typically watch at this time mm-hmm. on whatever channel it happens to be on. So as long as they're doing that thing where they're aiding your discovery by helping you find the things that you already watch pretty regularly, this may not be that bad. I also hope, and I haven't been able to find something like this in the settings yet, but I hope they let you turn it off if you don't want it. Mm. Like if all you want is your Sling TV content and you don't care about these 800 other channels, then get it out of there, right? Don't, don't muck it up with all this extra content. That's just going to, I think, hurt the experience for other consumers. I think that's unlikely to happen. I don't think they're going to let you can configure what sources you have showing up in your guide. <sighs> well, I can dream, right? Well, and you'll let us know. <laughs> yes. I, I'm going to keep checking. Yeah. It's not even my daily driver for a streaming device, but I want to see this update. Yeah, for sure. Well, let's stick with YouTube and move on to an update on the NFL Sunday ticket and what that's actually going to look like and more specifically cost as starting this fall, NFL Sunday ticket moves from being a DirecTV exclusive to being a YouTube exclusive. and. Even calling it a YouTube exclusive is a little bit confusing because you can watch this on YouTube TV, the monthly cable subscription replacement service, or just on YouTube. It'll just cost you a different amount of money to do this. So again, it's NFL football. That's what we're talking about here. Starting this fall will be available through YouTube. If you have an active YouTube TV subscription, then the NFL Sunday ticket package, the regular price, will be $349 for the season. Don't worry, it's not $350 a month or anything like that. But for $350, you'll be able to watch all of the out-of-market NFL games through YouTube TV. If you also want the NFL Red Zone channel added onto that, it adds $40 to the yearly subscription cost. So it'd be $389. That's if you're a YouTube TV subscriber, but you don't have to be. If all you care about is football and you don't care about being able to watch, say, the games that are on ESPN, then you can subscribe to Sunday Ticket and just watch it on regular YouTube. It'll cost you more, though. It'll be $449 for the season or $489 if you want the NFL Red Zone channel added on. So it's $100 extra for the entire season versus paying $73 a month to have this with YouTube TV. But again, with YouTube TV, you get all of those games that would be on the other services like ESPN. Also, if all of this is sounding way too expensive and you know you're going to do this anyway, 
if you sign up before June 6th, you get all of it for a $100 discount, which is pretty massive. So if you know you're switching to getting your your NFL Sunday ticket and ideally maybe the, the Red Zone channel also, do it soon because that's 100 bucks in your pocket. This is so much money for sports ball. It's so much money. I know, I know that this package in particular, NFL Sunday ticket, has always been a big ticket item, no pun intended. But geez, I mean, $489? Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's a lot uh, for me too, coming from being a hockey fan. Because I have regularly subscribed to the hockey version of this when it was its own standalone service, just run directly from the NHL. I think it was $135 for the entire season. And now it's even less because it's just part of ESPN Plus. Right. Which I think is now $10 a month as a standalone service, but I'm getting it through the Disney, Hulu, ESPN Plus bundle. Right, right. So way less money, but again, also way fewer viewers of NHL right. hockey in the U.S. versus NFL football. Right. And I mean, they have a history of literally decades of being able to get not necessarily this kind of money, but hundreds of dollars from cable subscribers who wanted to add to their cable package the the NFL Sunday ticket package. Mm-hmm. And it's you know, this has been out there forever. And so they know people will pay for it. Yeah. Yeah. So there you go. Like, I, I love the fact that it's more broadly available. Like, basically anybody can get it now, now that it doesn't require direct TV. But whew, yeah, that's a lot of money. It's a lot of money. Yeah. Sorry. I didn't mean to call satellite cable, but you know what I meant. Yeah. Yep. <laughs> All right. Well, last really, really quick one. If you're a huge music fan, then you might know that Coachella is happening this coming weekend, starting Friday the 14th, Richard's birthday, and then continuing again next weekend, April 21st, my birthday. Just throwing those out there in case you want to get us presents. Um, (laughs) Because we're not going to Coachella. If we really wanted to see any of these artists, of which I looked through the entire list tonight, Richard, there may maybe 10 artists that I even know of on this hmm. list and maybe five that I would want to see. Yeah. But it is a massive, massive concert. There are six stages at this music festival, which seems insane to me, but this year YouTube is live streaming all of it, all six stages. So regardless of what you want to listen to, it's going to be available on YouTube, which is pretty awesome. It doesn't cost you anything when there aren't musicians playing, which seems impossible when there are six stages like how could there ever be a moment when there isn't someone performing well i mean people gotta sleep right i guess uh they're doing other special like behind the scenes things and all of that stuff so definitely worth checking out if you're at all interested in coachella but aren't interested in flying to la and dealing with the massive humanity that will be there you can just check it out on youtube for free cool yes that's it uh, have you looked at the lineup? Do you care about any of these artists? So I have not looked at the lineup. Coachella is one of those. So let me, let me back up a little bit. <laughs> let 
let me set the stage by saying I go to South by every year. Now I haven't during COVID and I hope to go back next year, but I'm into this whole, you know, kind of music festival idea. I think it's cool. Coachella has never interested me, <laughs> never interested me because it, it kind of strikes me as just a little, like it's, it's just too much. It's just way too much. And I've heard too many stories about the drugs and the craziness and everything else. And that's absolutely not my scene. <laughs> right. So if there are artists that I'd want to see, sure, maybe I'll watch it on YouTube. But to be honest, I'm not really all that excited about the idea of watching live performances at an event like this through YouTube. I mean, it's cool if you really want to hear your favorite artists. Mm -hmm. But I have a hard time believing that there's going to be anybody there that would be like, oh, my God, I got to hear this performance. I'm going to die if I miss it. And, you know, so. Plus, remember, I'm not a big concert guy. Right. That's true. Unlike me, Jen and I were, were going through our, our schedule this year. We, we were very disappointed. Last year, we saw one live show. We've already been to one live show this year, a few weeks ago. And I think we have tickets for at least four or five more shows throughout the rest of this year. And that probably won't be all of them. We love live You must music. be going to shows where they don't blow your ears out. Because that's the biggest thing that's just <laughs> bothered me most about the last few concerts I attended. Mm. I probably just, should start bringing earplugs. Yeah, it's just so loud. And yes, I'm old. I get it. But I now have constant ringing in my ears with tinnitus because mm. stuff was too loud when I was younger. Right, right. Okay, well, why don't we move on to a couple of gaming stories? A couple of big ones this week. The first one. The, I, I cannot believe that Asus made this announcement when they did. Asus chose April 1st to announce a new handheld gaming computer. April, why would anyone announce anything that's real on April 1st? It's a right. Saturday well, and it's April the, Fool's Day. Right. That's the thing that I just don't understand <sighs> at all. Saturday. Mm -hmm. Saturday. Did they. Did they hope that people might pick it up by mistake? I mean, I just don't <laughs> understand. I, nothing about this makes sense. None of it. Are we are we sure it's real? It is for sure real. It is All absolutely right. definitely real. I've seen YouTube videos of people using this device. All right, what are we actually talking about? It is a, a new device from Asus's ROG line of gaming devices. ROG stands for Republic of Gamers. And this is called the ROG ally think steam deck that's what this is competing with it is a seven inch handheld portable gaming pc seven inch 16 by 9 aspect ratio display 1080p resolution at 120 hertz that may not sound super impressive as a gaming monitor but it is when you compare it to the Steam Deck, because the Steam Deck is a 16 by 10 aspects ratio screen, but it only runs at 800p, so it's lower res, and only at 60 hertz uh, re refresh rate. Maybe the refresh rate doesn't matter, 
if it's not powerful enough to push games at more than 60 hertz, then it wouldn't matter. We don't know yet uh, because, you know, not many people have been able to go hands on with this thing yet, but it is running a brand new custom built AMD APU. So combined chipset that has the, the CPU and the GPU on one chip. Another big difference here, though, it's running Windows. The Steam Deck is running a version of Linux, which means that not every game that is available from Steam actually runs on the thing because a lot of Steam games still require Windows. So that's been a problem. The other thing that it running Windows means is that it will, it should just work with PC Game Pass. So Tons and tons and tons. Basically, you know, you can almost say every computer game ever made will run on this thing. Like that's not actually true, but it's way more than what is available on the Steam Deck. So all of that is cool enough on its own. And and if all you're looking for is a portable gaming PC, then this might be good enough for you. But the other thing that this supports is Asus has an external GPU dock that they support for some of their gaming laptops where maybe they don't put the most powerful GPU in the laptop, but when you want to bring it home and hook it up to your TV or your massive monitor, you can hook it up through USB-C to an external GPU and then plug your TV into that. And that will also work with this thing. Now, there's no date for any of this. There's no cost for any of this. We know that it'll be available at Best Buy and that Asus is a major manufacturer compared to some of the other companies out there that are trying to build Steam Deck competitors. And they're saying that it will be priced very competitively, in quotes. So does that mean that they're going to be able to roll this thing out at $400, like the base model Steam Deck? I doubt it. But most people probably aren't buying the base model Steam Deck anyway. So if they can release this at five, six hundred dollars, ooh, that sounds pretty good for what this is. And frankly, I, I think especially when you consider the, the possibility of the external GPU support, like this could legit be someone's only computer when you slap it on a dock, you've got even more power when you plug it in that way and then can be using Windows with other external accessories. That sounds pretty awesome to me. You're not a gamer, what, but what do you think of this, Richard? I still have a hard time understanding the appeal of devices like this, quite frankly, to pay that much money for a small screen gaming device that, yeah, sure, you can hook it up to a monitor and stuff like that. But um, it, it's it's hard for me to understand the appeal of this category of device. Now, as you mentioned, Asus, they're pretty well known for very competitively priced stuff. So, you know, you mentioned very competitively in, in quotes. I want people to understand that's not air quotes as in, sure, very competitively. <laughs> no, that there's, they said it would be very competitively priced. And, and, and I totally believe that. That's one thing that they do a pretty good job on. I honestly think that Asus gets kind of 
I don't know, a, a bad name and sometimes forgotten in the PC space. And they make decent equipment at good prices. Mm-hmm. So uh, I, I'll be interested to see how this does. Clearly, I'm not going to be buying one. But uh, I, I think if this can do everything it says it can, I think it's going to, you know, give the Steam Deck a little bit of a run for its literal money. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I'm super excited to see what this ends up costing, when it's going to be available, how powerful it actually is, how quiet it is. It's supposed to be quieter than the Steam Deck. It sounds really cool. So we'll be waiting to get more information on that. Other huge story in the gaming space is, of course, E3 canceled. Not maybe the most surprising news, but definitely some of the biggest news of the last few weeks with Nintendo not there, Sony not there, Microsoft not really there, more and more and more of the big publishers pulling out of this show. They just couldn't make it work. So they officially canceled it on a Friday, of course, because that's when you announce the bad news. Uh, but later in the day, the ESA president and CEO, Stanley Pierre Lewis, I don't know, it might be Luis. Uh, probably Pierre Louis. Probably, yeah. But I suck at pronouncing French. So um, <laughs> he gave an interview. And in that interview, I'm just going to read his whole quote because I'm sure it was well rehearsed. And I think it does a pretty good job of answering what happened here. He says, first, several companies have reported that the timeline for game development has been altered since the start of the COVID pandemic. Second, economic headwinds have caused several companies to reassess how they invest in large marketing events. And third, companies are starting to experiment with how to find the right balance between in-person events and digital marketing opportunities. Now, obviously, that's a lot of business speak. But basically, what he's saying is, Everybody pulled out. Well, but but for but for valid reasons, really. Yeah. Like yeah. the 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 timeline for game developments uh, for games has been screwed up drastically by yep. the the COVID pandemic. Lots and lots of games that were scheduled for 2020 didn't happen at all until 2021. Lots of games that were scheduled to be fall of 2021 didn't happen until 22. And it just continues to happen because games take forever to make. So summer events, not necessarily making the most sense for some studios. The the economic headwinds things, uh, yeah. Anybody noticed inflation and the impact that that's had on the entire economy? But also look at how the tech industry seems to be... Uh, having more struggles with like layoffs and stuff like that than a lot of other industry yep. uh, segments out there. That is for sure. Hit the, hit the gaming side of things. Microsoft has had huge layoffs uh, as just one example. And then third, yeah, during the pandemic, lots of companies figured out how to do video presentations on their own without needing the support of a giant industry event to to do this in. And then the one thing that he doesn't talk about, of course, is when you do these events on your own schedule, it means that your news is not getting, uh, you know, brushed aside by some other bigger player. You don't have to compete because it's not everybody in the industry 
announcing all of their news at the same time. So, so I have, yeah, go ahead. I have thoughts. And my initial reaction is that, yeah, those are all valid issues. How has CES survived? How has Cedia survived? Cedia had a really hard year when they tried to go live before people were, were ready to go back. But last year was better. This coming year is expected to be even better. CES went digital for a while. It was terrible. They went back in person, and the last CES was actually pretty successful, even though we didn't go. And so I don't know. I think there's more going on than just this. I I suspect that the, the terms for appearing, whether it's the cost or the space or the timing or whatever, has a bigger play in this for many of the companies than just all these other factors that are affecting any other tech conference that has had to figure out how to survive today. I I get what you're saying. I think a big part of this, though, that that is different for video games than for CES, which is the entire tech space, and uh, Cedia that you mentioned, which is largely smart home and and custom integrator, high end home theater stuff. The biggest difference between what E three offers versus all of those other shows is that the number one thing that people are excited about that comes out of E3 are digital things. They are games. They are, which are basically not true. physical products anymore. True. That's true. It's, and so you don't need to physically be there. You don't need to be to see the digital things. Right. Yeah. No, that's a very good point. That's a very good point. Because at the end of the day, we're just watching game trailers. We're just watching videos of these games. And no one needs to be hands-on, really, to see this. Now, that's not entirely true because the hands-on experience of playing the game that the press then gives to the gaming audience is useful. But the the publishers have been doing smaller events for just their games whenever they want. And they yeah. it, they just fly out a bunch of popular video game press people to their studio have a completely controlled environment where it can be the best possible experience for the game's uh, media coverage people to experience their game in it. And it's, I'm sure dramatically less expensive than any of these other types of events. I'm sure it is too. I do think it disadvantages the smaller companies that don't have the infrastructure to pull that off. Right. And so a venue to present your digital wares is potentially more important to those smaller companies because they have an opportunity to be seen where in a, you know, a normal press release that they might put out, they might be completely like glossed over. Yeah. And, and I think that, that that still gets covered by other smaller events because in the video game space, unlike, I mean, there are other sort of competitors to, to CES. There is, um, Eva and there's right. You know, th- there's a couple of other ones, Yeah, but, yeah. but in the game, Congress and well, stuff yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, but in gaming, you have 
PAX, the, the Penny Arcade Expo, there's multiple uh, of of those events that happen a year now. They're smaller. They're really geared more towards the indie experience. It probably costs less money for these developers to show up there. And then there's also, which we've talked about this recently, the Game Developers Conference, which is a it, like it is an event for game developers. It is similar to Microsoft Build or Google I.O., where it is an event for developers. It is not really for the press. It is not at all for game players or anything like that. But that is where some of the the smaller developers are going to be anyway, because they want the experience they're getting, plus the press is there to report on things. So there are other opportunities for some of these smaller developers and publishers to get uh, that bigger ex- ex- experience and exposure without having to be at E3. Yeah. Yeah. I see that. So I think E3 is toast. I don't think it's coming back. Wow. And, and I don't think it necessarily needs to because of the other things that we have. I'm not happy about that. I want E3. I want to continue to live in a world where E3 happens because it makes June a lot more fun. I, I like these consolidated events where like fans of this stuff can just nerd out for a week on everything that's happening in the area that they're super excited about. I just don't think it's going to happen here. And I do wonder if this trend does start to impact some of the other shows that you talked about, like CES, like Cedia. We'll see. Like Cedia is in just a couple, well, I guess it's almost six months away. Um, And we've got eight months or whatever until the next CES. But I mean, people have been complaining about those shows for years. And some of the things that impacted E3 do apply to CES. But the fact that it is still so hardware focused does make CES and Cedia still incredibly beneficial. And and I don't think I don't want people to think that I don't complain about CES. I totally complain about CES. There's lots to complain about, but it still adds value, and its demise has been predicted for years and years and years. Right. But it gets people in front of each other to make deals, and that's why it's important. Right. Right. Okay. Well, one more story this week. It's not gaming. It's ebooks. So. Everyone is, has known about Kindles forever. The, the Kindle e-reader devices, the Kindle library. A lesser-known brand that's been around for a while is Kobo. They've had their own e-reader devices for, it's got to be at least a decade now. They've been around for a while. They've got their own ebook service and audiobook service. Now, in the U.S., they are bringing a subscription service to basically rival Kindle Unlimited. It's a new service called Kobo Plus, and there's really three tiers here. One is a monthly subscription service for eBooks. One is a monthly subscription for audiobooks. And the third one gets you both. So if you just want eBooks or audiobooks, you can get either one of those individual services for $7.99 a month, or if you want ebooks and audiobooks, it's $9.99 a month. 
How does that compare to Kindle Unlimited? Well, Kindle Unlimited is $9.99 a month, and it's only eBooks. You do not get audiobooks from Kindle Unlimited. What's the other difference? The library size. And this is what's the most critical, right? That's that's always been the case with any digital subscription service, whether it's Netflix versus Hulu, whatever. It has to have the content that you want. On the Kobo side, they're saying 1.3 million ebooks, which sounds like a ton. Kindle Unlimited has over 3 million ebooks. On the audiobook side, Kobo Plus, 100,000 audiobooks, which you know, now now that I've just told you that Kindle Unlimited has three million ebooks, a hundred thousand audiobooks does not sound like very right. many at all. Right. But Kindle Unlimited, zero ebooks, so it's a hundred thousand more than that, <laughs> which is a pretty good start. I'm really interested in this service. We do pay for Kindle Unlimited. My wife uses it a lot. I'm always curious what it is that she's reading uh through that service. When I look for a lot of the nonfiction books that I'm looking for, they're not there on Kindle Unlimited. So I plan to start looking at Kobo. Like whenever I have a new book that I want to look at, first, I'm still going to start with the library because the library is free and the Libby app works really well. But if Libby doesn't have it, I'm going to start looking at Kindle Unlimited Well, and Kobo, I guess. But for me, all I really want is audiobooks. I just don't read ebooks. Right. But if Kobo has most of what Jen and I are looking for for the same price as Kindle Unlimited, but we get ebooks and audiobooks, like this will be a no brainer. But it entirely comes down to what that library actually looks like. Right. Right. No, this looks pretty cool. I'm frankly surprised that Kobo is still around. Most people. <laughs> learned or knew about Kobo because after Borders failed attempt to come out with their own readers, they ultimately partnered with Kobo and really kind of helped jumpstart that brand. But of course, Borders died. (laughs) Kobo didn't. And I think a lot of people forgot about Kobo. Yeah, for sure. And so Kobo does have their own line of e-readers, like I said. And I think some of them would support audiobooks, but maybe not all of them. But you don't have to have any of them because just like Kindle, they have apps on iOS, Android, and desktop. So, you know, if you're just using your phone or your iPad or whatever, you're covered there. The other nice thing here, 30-day free trial of the service. So you get a pretty, like, frankly, 30-day free trials seem rare nowadays with subscription services. It seems like they're all 7 or 14 days. So 30-day free trial seems pretty generous to me, and I just need to sign up and give this a try. All right. Well, that is it for all of our news this week, Richard. It's been a few weeks. What is going on in your entertainment center? All right. I will try and make this quick. So we got back to watching season three of Penny Dreadful. You may remember this is our rewatch. We watched the whole series before. Loving this. And because of this... I ended up uh, starting a new book that I'll talk about in a little bit. Also, continuing to watch new episodes of Last Week Tonight with John Oliver. The card is so good. It is so good this season. They have redeemed themselves, particularly if you're a Next Generation fan. And I think Brian Brushwood summed it up 
best on Cord Killers when he described Picard season three as the best Star Trek Next Generation movie ever made. Because that's what this is. That's what they've done. They've created an epic that spans 10 hours and it has just been so much fun. I'm thoroughly enjoying it. Also, as I mentioned, watching uh, Will Wheaton totally nerd out shamelessly in The Ready Room, which is his fan show that follows each new episode. And that's been really good because he gets all of the stars on talking about their experience doing this and getting back with the old cast. And it's just been, you know, a, a lot of really good, warm feelings from that. I finished season one of The Courtship of Eddie's Father and bought season two, but I have not started that yet. I am up to date on Abbott Elementary. I am up to date even to today's episode on Ted Lasso season three. It is so good. I am loving, loving what they're doing. And this last episode was fantastic. We watched the first episode of the show, Hello Tomorrow. This is an Apple TV Plus series. It is a retro future, not sitcom, but kind of like quirky comedy where people are selling timeshares on the moon. And it's very weird. I don't know if I'll watch another episode. I might try one, but the first episode certainly didn't get me sucked in. So, you know, in all fairness, that's like some of the other Apple TV series that have been out. That first episode doesn't always catch you, so I am willing to give it another try. I have been watching Better Call Saul Season 6, about halfway through that right now. We did watch a couple movies, watch Jurassic World Dominion, the extended edition of that, which has so much extra footage. That was interesting to watch and so, so long. Also, speaking of long movies, The Eternals, which isn't really that long, but felt really <laughs> really long uh-huh <laughs> and and just kind of completely out of place in the marvel cinematic universe as we know it it is intended to kind of start out separately and maybe it'll get blended with other stuff but i really don't care no i, I just <laughs> i don't care if they make another one or not and as a as a kind of uh, gauge on how much I didn't enjoy this. I actually started falling asleep after the first half hour <laughs> and just had to turn it off and went to bed and tried it again like three days later and then got through the rest of it. And, you know, lots of pretty people doing supernatural stuff that seemed completely irrelevant. Yep. So <laughs> it's just. Yeah. And um, as far as what I have been listening to as for books, I finished Zero Fail, the history of the Secret Service. That was really good. I loved, loved that book. I would highly recommend it to anybody who's interested in the history of the Secret Service. I think she does an amazing job of just going through details. And as I mentioned, I kind of relived moments that I remember from my life and learned about things that I didn't know about that I lived through and was somehow blissfully unaware. <laughs> also, I had mentioned that 
I or I don't know if I did mention before that I had started Trigger, the next book in the David Swinson crime novel series that I was reading. So I finished that. That was really good. And I just started, and here's the tie back to Penny Dreadful, the picture of Dorian Gray, a 1890s-ish Oscar Wilde novel, Victorian horror kind of thing. And I just kind of vaguely am familiar with the gist of Dorian Gray, the guy who stays young because his soul is captured in a painting. So the painting ages, but he doesn't. And didn't really know the original story, just kind of like going back and reading Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and stuff like that. Uh, I wanted to get that original background here. So listening to that right now. And uh, finally, in podcasts, ever since I started going to the Outer Banks years ago, I had been looking for an Outer Banks podcast, something that would keep me up to date on what's going on in the Outer Banks, or expose me to stuff down there that I didn't know about yet. And over this last six months, numerous different outlets have started Outer Banks podcasts. I tried one that was associated with a blog that I read called Outer Banks This Week. So this is the Outer Banks This Week podcast. And what Outer Banks This Week did was they partnered with two former radio hosts who used to do a morning show together. So let me just say, unless you like the antics of a morning zoo style show with two people who talk all the time about them, themselves, (laughs) and their friends, and what they were doing, and you talked about taking forever to get into the meat of the podcast and just talking about fluff before you get into it. 15 minutes into the first episode before they actually talk about anything. Yikes. It was insane. So I figured I'll give it a try. I listened to all the episodes that are out there, six that are out, and it never got any better. So I don't ever recommend this (laughs) podcast unless you love morning zoo shows and you want to hear two people just banter at each other and, and talk with their radio voices for an hour about the people they know in the Outer Banks. Otherwise, I'm going to be looking for a new Outer Banks podcast. Yikes. Yeah. Okay. So uh, that's what I have been up to in my entertainment center and life. How about you, Josh? Yeah. <laughs> the Outer Banks podcast thing, that's got to be really hard to find podcasts that are about the real world Outer Banks when there's a show called The Outer Banks that probably has a million fan podcasts about it, too. Oh, in the seven hours of podcasting that they've done already, they've probably talked at least half an hour about (laughs) the fact that there's a show called The Outer Banks, and they really should watch it because there's these characters that are really kind of interesting. But it's not about The Outer Banks for real because it's not The Outer Banks. But Oh, my God, half an hour of this. No, we don't (laughs) care. There was an episode where half of the episode talked about can men and women actually be friends? What does this have to do with The Outer Banks? (laughs) All right, you've but I digress. Uh, you've sold me on never listening to that show. <laughs> All right, well, uh, for me, a, a fair amount of stuff, a little bit of NHL, of course, uh, both the game and watching it. Uh, that might be ending because for 
the first time in 16 years the Penguins might be about to miss the playoffs. So, um, yeah, it's not been a great year. So, uh, video games, though. A little bit of The Last of Us. I also decided to try Valheim. Now, I know I'm a couple of years behind the craze of this game, but it just came to Xbox, Xbox Game Pass, so I figured I would give it a try. This is a survival game that takes place in what I guess would be like whatever the Vikings call purgatory. Like, you're a dead Viking, and the idea is survive and beat these bosses, and then I guess you get to go to Valhalla? I guess? I don't know. I don't actually care that much about Viking mythology, but it's kind of a cool game. Like, I don't get into survival games, typically, because typically... The survival mechanics are are just brutal. Like, you know, if you don't eat something within 10 minutes, you die uh, and you lose everything and you have to start all over. Like, this is not nearly as oppressive as so many other survival games. There's actually objectives to do. It's not just survive and do whatever you want. Like, I want some guidance in what I'm supposed to be doing. And it's multiplayer, so while there is still some amount of grinding for resources and stuff like that, if you can do it while playing with friends, that makes it a little bit more fun, because you can be chatting about whatever you want while you're out chopping down trees and killing boars and deer and stuff like that. So I've never played as much of a survival game as I have Valheim, and it might stay in the rotation. We'll see. So I have a funny feeling that uh, whatever they might call purgatory is Valheim. Uh, might Valheim <laughs> is a land where Odin casts his enemies into eternal exile. Ah, uh, that probably is it. See, I, I barely <laughs> even paid attention to the story when the game started, so, which is unlike me. But it was a survival game, so I didn't, I, I didn't have very high expectations. So yeah, uh, outside of my home, I, I went out and saw the Mario Brothers movie. Took the took the kids, went with some friends. I think they did exactly what they should have done with this movie. It is an hour, an hour and a half long, which is the perfect length for a kid's movie. It has enough Mario charm and nostalgia stuff to get any longtime Nintendo fan to enjoy it. There's a couple of aspects to it that are a little bit scary for young kids that maybe they could have toned down a little bit. But overall, the kids loved it. I, I think Jen loved this more than I do. And Jen is not a longtime Nintendo fan. Like, she's played some Mario Kart and she's played some Mario Brothers. But, like, she's not noticing all of the little details that even my 10-year-old was noticing about some of the Mario-related things. It was just fine. And that's all it needed to be. So, it, it's, like, it's good. But if if you're an adult... And you don't have kids that want to go see this and you're not like this super hardcore Nintendo nerd. I don't think you need to waste your time. It's not like Pixar movies where like everybody should see all of them because they're all that great. Yeah. It's just a pretty well done kids movie. Noted. I can miss this. You can absolutely miss this. Uh, we are catching up on Ted Lasso. We're almost done with season two. We skipped the weird ass beard night out movie, whatever yeah. episode. That totally was. skippable. Yeah. But you didn't skip the Christmas episode, did you? We, no, of course not. That, that was, was great. One of the best. So no, we didn't skip that one. I think we only have one more episode in season two and then we can finally get started with season three. Cool. Very excited about that. And then 
an ebook. I finished the anomaly, as I mentioned on the last episode, and then I went looking and and I had been getting like Google had, had been suggesting to me various websites that talk about like these are the best sci-fi books that every fan of sci-fi should read. And most of the books on that list I've never actually read. And one of them was Ender's Game. It's a book that's been around for, what, 60 years or something like that. (laughs) Um, And there was even a recent movie adaptation of it that I've also never seen. So got the the book, the original book, uh, as an audiobook through Libby from my library. I'm about halfway through it. I am loving this book. It is so good. And I realized that like, it's ridiculous for me to be like, Hey guys, have you ever heard of the end of Ender's game? You should totally check this out. Like everyone listening to this has probably already read Ender's game. It's really good. That's cool. I have not read this yet and I've wanted to. So yeah. Yeah. And I heard that the movie is very disappointing. So (laughs) I don't think we've missed much there. Yeah. But I I would love to read that. This this is a great recommendation. Yeah. Well, I, I'm surprised that you haven't read it, but I, uh, and it's a whole series. So we'll see how this book goes and, and maybe I'll continue on with the series. I don't know how many books are in it, but so far really liking this book. And then one piece of hardware stuff going on in my entertainment center, my old Vizio TV, my, my first 4k TV, the, M55D0, I think it was, uh, the 55-inch the 4K set that I bought a few years ago. It's been in my basement since we got the LG OLED. It doesn't really work anymore. Um, I press the power button, the little power light comes on, and after about eight seconds, it turns off. I've tried like various unplug it for a while, that sort of stuff, try holding volume buttons while turning it on. Nothing is working. I think it's toast. I have one potential chance at fixing this though, because a friend of mine, one of the guys that I play video games with has the same TV. And unfortunately one of his kids chucked something at the TV and broke the screen and he still has it. So all of the rest of the parts (laughs) are available. If I want to try to replace like the power board or the motherboard, I have no idea how complicated any of that. Yeah, that could is. be entailed depending on how, you know, modular that stuff is. Right. But interesting. Yeah. I have one suggestion that you might not have thought of because who does this? But maybe call Vizio support. <laughs> Seriously, like maybe they can help you troubleshoot to determine is it dead dead or is there some trick to better troubleshoot what is wrong with it and maybe it's not that hard to fix you know yeah yeah it's probably something i should try but we all know how those calls go you spend an hour on the call with them at at where they like force you to do all of the stupid crap yeah did you first here is terrible i'm not even using the remote are you sure you should still change the batteries in the remote i'm not using the remote you know that sort of crap yep Um, but it's worth a try. And if anybody who listens to the show knows about fixing TVs and you have any ideas of like, oh yeah, I've seen that exact problem. This is the thing that needs to be fixed. I would appreciate that because if it's fairly easy to do, then I'll do it. If it's not, I think I've got to buy a new TV for the basement. 
At least they're cheap nowadays because I'm not going to buy like a fancy OLED for the basement. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's probably going to be go down to Best Buy and buy the biggest, cheapest Hisense TV that I can find. I'm going to remind you that when I wanted to buy a new TV for my office and I wanted to buy a cheap TV (laughs) that you and a collection of people on the internet managed to guilt me into not buying a cheap TV and buying an expensive TV instead. I believe you were talking about buying a 720p TV. Yeah, for my office. I'm at least going to buy a 4K TV. It was going to be $129. Instead, <laughs> I spent $1,000 on a Samsung frame. Right. I, whereas if I have to buy a new TV, I'll probably spend like $350 on like a 55-inch Hisense. Yeah, we'll see. Hopefully not. Hopefully I don't have to pay anything. And it's like a 15-minute repair with my friend's TV's parts. All right. Well, that's it for everything in this show. Thank you for listening through to the end. If you would like to get a hold of us, I'm on Twitter at Josh Pollard. So is the website at DigiMediaZone. We're also both on Mastodon at Josh Pollard at Richard Gunther over there. And uh, our show notes, everything else that we've talked about, there are links to everything over at our website, www.thedigitalmediazone.com. The other thing that shows up over there, Richard's other podcast. It's called Home On. Richard, what is going on with the Home On podcast? I mean, occasionally it shows up, right? So I had recorded an episode with Dustin Bogust, the YouTuber behind the channel My Home Kit Home. And then my life kind of blew up. My dog got sick and I had stuff I needed to deal with down at the rental home. So I have not yet fully edited that, but I am hoping that this weekend I will finally get that done and have that posted any day now. Awesome. Looking forward to it. All right. And we normally do this show live when, you know, we're not dealing with technical issues and crazy work lives. Uh, Follow us on social to find out when that's going to be. It's regularly Tuesday nights at 8.30 p.m. Eastern, but follow us on, on socials or just subscribe to us on Twitch and you'll get notified that way also. But that's going to do it for episode 618. He's Richard Gunther, and I'm Josh Pollard. Thanks for listening to Entertainment 2.0. Adios. Goodbye.